God shows us the fruit of suffering and what we all should be striving towards. God shows us the fruit of suffering and what we all should be striving towards. As I said, First Peter chapter 5, it is the culmination of a letter written about suffering, how we should suffer. What is the correct way to suffer for the gospel's sake? And again, it's no sick game that God gets enjoyment out of your struggles and my struggles. Your heartaches, loss of loved ones, struggles, children and parents. God didn't choose this. Sin entered the world because of disobedience. And now he uses that to bring about good in my life and your life. And the result of sin the struggle, suffering. But only God can take the suffering, the ills, the evil of man and turn it around for good. For you and I, if we do it the right way. And so 1 Peter 5 is the culmination of a life that is dedicated to suffering the godly way. There's two main sections. The first four verses are going to be uh, leaders in the church. The result that suffering should bring about the fruit of suffering for leaders. And then the remaining uh, verses in the chapter is about the, the individual, the Christian. And how he or she should use suffering to grow in Christ. And I warn you now, I'm going to move a little fast because in, in hindsight, this probably should have been two weeks. But let's see if we can get through it. First Peter chapter five, starting at verse one. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here, Peter identifies himself with the other elders. Yes, he was an apostle, but the function of the local church, Peter says that he is an elder like they are. Many believe that he is an elder at the church in Jerusalem, the mother church. And he functioned as an elder. And because of that, he now relates to other elders throughout the Roman Empire. He says, you guys, in essence, have heard about the sufferings of Christ. I, myself, I was there. But not only the, the sufferings of Christ, but because of that, I will also be the partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. This is a man, as we know, who not long from here, many people believe, will be crucified upside down for his faith. These aren't just words. Here's the first point in verse 2. Peter speaking to the elders abroad. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Here's the first point. A mature leader exhibits certain godly qualities. The qualities first started in verse 2. Let's look at it. Exercise and oversight. Here it is, the first one. Not under compulsion, but willingly. No leader in the Christian church should lead because mama or daddy wanted him to lead. No leader in the church should lead under compulsion. Well, the committee voted me leader, so I'm going to lead. No. Because any, anybody who leads in a church because someone else wanted them to, that's going to be a bad leader. Not of the compulsion, but willingly. There is a conviction you have from God. A mandate from God that causes you to lead. First attribute, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Here's the second one, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. The term eagerly sometimes is translated as willingly or freely. The second attribute of a godly leader made and formed through suffering is that he's not motivated by money. The money that an, a Christian ministry gives him should not be the motivating factor for why he does what he does. If a minister shows up because of the paycheck he gets, it's a problem. That's a problem. If a pastor's here only because it's a way to pay the bills, it's a problem. Or worse now, what we see, if a pastor or a minister goes to a ministry with the idea that now I'm going to get million-dollar homes and big cars and book deals, and radio deals. And my face is going to be plastered on the television. I'm going to be on the New York's best sellers list for my book. I'm going to make a name for myself. No. Not for shameful gain. But eagerly. And it, it's sad. I, I have to. I have to tell you this. Last year, I went to a cousin's wedding down in Atlanta. And if you've been to Atlanta, you know Atlanta has a church on every corner, looks like. And a witness to this guy, long story short, he said, okay, I'll listen to you. And we started to talk. And he started to share about all his, his hurt and his pain. And he said, you know what? I listen to the preachers on TV. And I said, oh, don't, don't, don't go to the TV. Uh, for your doctrine, go to the Bible. He said, yeah, man. He says, let me tell you something, man. I said, go ahead, tell me. He said, here's what we do. Four or five of us, we get in the room, and we take a bet. And one person says five seconds, one person says 
10 seconds, one says it's 14, one says 8. And then once the bets are laid, we turn on the local television with the local pastor. And the bets are how long it's going to take for him to ask us for money. And that's the game that they play. That's sad. It's awful. And he was saying nobody bets uh, 45 seconds because we know it is not going to take that long. Yes, God has a lot to say about my money, his money that he's entrusted me with. But if money is ever the central theme in a ministry. If a preacher can come from Genesis to Revelation and always end up at money. No matter what the starting text is. You got a problem. And Peter is saying this man who is a godly leader, he's not driven by money. Not about not about gain. Go get a job in the secular world and do the best you can there. But if you come in here, it's not about money. Not for shameful gain. But eagerly or willingly or freely. Here's the next attribute of a godly leader in verse three. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In other words, Godly leaders don't ask you to do something they're not willing to do. Those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit who love Christ, they don't see it as a position to now I get to tell people what to do. If you lead by example, look, I ran across an article. And what better example of dominating leadership than the U.S. Congress. The article, the U.S. Congress is known for their policy, is writing, for known for their policy as, quote, one law for thee, one law for me. In 2009, uh, a senator from Iowa uh, cried to the nation that this rule was embedded in what is known as the Affordable Care Act. And he encouraged that, you know what, Congress should live under this law that they just passed for everyone else. Because Congress and their staffs uh, were not getting insurance through the exchanges. They were, but they were getting subsidies. It's so affordable that the congressmen and their staff got subsidies Anywhere from 5000 to 11000 a year per person. If it's so affordable, Congressman, why do you need these subsidies? But you see, they pass one law for you, one for them. And it's not just the Affordable Care Act. They did it when it comes to insider trading. Do you know if you get uh, some information from a vice president and you... You trade with that insider knowledge, you go to jail. Not them. It's legal. One article I read, a senator was about to pass legislation. He stopped the committee because he was the head of it. Went out, called his broker, made trades, and then went back in and finished the legislation and passed it. And it is perfectly legal. 
You see, that's the mindset of one law for thee, one law for me. And you can go over and over and over. That, that, that's, that's what they do. And when it comes to the Christian and the leadership in the church, that is not supposed to be. It's not godly. It's not honest. Lena and I, we were newly married. We were at one church. No need for names. But at the end of the church, we had a fellowship. And everyone was going down the stairs like we do here. and We were waiting in the line. And we were wondering, why are we waiting so long in this line? What's taking so long? And then when you got up to the front, you recognized what was taking so long. You see, the leadership of the church, they went in the back in the kitchen and got all of the best foods and put it at their table. Took it out of the line and put it at their table. And then they sat down and started to eat. And then the rest of us could go through line and get our food and then sit down. So if you had a casserole that you brought that was so good and it caught their eye, when you went through the line, you couldn't even get your own casserole because they took it and put it on their table. And as I'm sitting there, I'm saying, something's wrong with this picture. Are you kidding me? And I remember speaking to a friend. This was like last year. This incident happened almost 20 years ago. And I said, hey, do you remember what so-and-so? And he dropped his head and said, yeah, I remember. Because it was ugly. That's something the world does. Contrast that with our Lord and Savior. In John 13. The apostles come to a house and their feet are dirty, stinky and muddy and cruddy. And he turns to his disciples and he says, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter yells out, no, not me, Lord. He said, yes, you. So much so that if I don't do it, you have no part with me. He then sat down. Jesus took the towel off and washed his disciples' cruddy, nasty, ugly feet. And then he says, you call me Lord and Master, for so I am. But if I do this, you should be willing to. If washing someone's ugly, dirty feet is not not beyond God in the flesh, then what job is so good that you won't do it? Thus setting an example about how godly Christian leadership is. It is not domineering. It's sacrificial. And as Nuo continues to grow, I I like the fact that, and, and, and I noticed this, that those who teach or in leadership positions in the church, they kind of hung to the back and let others go first. I noticed that. That's the atmosphere we want to build here at New Hope. Not domineering but examples to the flock. And look at verse 
4. The last attribute is of a godly leader who's gone through suffering the correct way. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The last attribute that Peter lets us know that a godly leader does, he's controlled by the deep conviction of the return of Christ. It's not something he simply reads and puts in a category with little Bo Peep and Peter Pan. He believes it. He's controlled by it. He'll forgive when you wrong him because he knows that Christ is going to repay all according to their deeds, whether good or bad. So he forgives. He foregoes the pleasures of the flesh because he is convicted that Jesus sees all. And no matter what he does in secret, he'll give an account. And he's controlled by that. And he recognizes he's an underling. The chief shepherd. He's coming. He's coming. Peter says godly leaders are so. We move to verse 5. And this is more to the general audience in the context of a maturing believer who exhibits certain fruits as he goes, he or she goes through suffering. Look at verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger are newer. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives great, but gives grace to the humble. Here's the second major point about a maturing Christian. A maturing Christian respects the leaders of the church. They submit to the leaders. They respect the leaders. But submission does not mean blind obedience. Submission is God has them in that position. They have them in that that office and I'll respect it because I know, I know in their position, God has put upon them burdens that they must carry. Responsibilities that's theirs. I, 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 I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people, even when I was the associate pastor here for many years. How many conversations I had and people just railing. You need to do this. You need to do that. Why was this and why was that? And I'm sitting saying, you don't know all the facts pertaining the situation. And I'm not under liberty because of confidentiality to let you in on all of it. But it's easy to sit back and throw stones and you don't know all that's entailed in the situation. Recognize sometimes when leadership makes decisions, it's not that you can't question, of course, especially when it comes to doctrine or the general direction of the church. But when it comes to individuals and how certain things are handled, just remember 
99 times the individual out there, they don't have all the facts. And just respect your leaders. Understand. And as I remember when I was younger, I used to be a lot more critical of leaders. And then I saw from the other side of the fence. And it's real easy to criticize someone on television or whatnot. But always in the back of my mind, I don't have all the facts. I've become less critical of people in the public eye making decisions. Here's the third one. Running out of time. Here's the third one. Also in the fifth verse, a maturing Christian shows different deference to other believers. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. It's a general focus. It's an attitude of the heart that when I come to church, it ain't all about me. I don't come to church to get my ego stroked, to be acknowledged before men. You'll be acknowledged. But let God acknowledge you in a proper time. To clothe myself with humility towards other Christians is to say, hey, if it comes down to it, I'll give difference to you. I'll let you go in the line first. Sometimes that's hard when it's good food, but I'll let you go in the line first. And if it means I don't get that, that special cake, then I don't get it. I'd rather you have it. That means if I am maligned for your sake, then I'm maligned. That means if I go without, then I go without. Always looking to put someone else's needs above my own. A maturing Christian, they understand that. They clothe themselves with humility. And they say to others at the church, you can go first. And why do they do that? Because any Christian who's gone through suffering and know their God at any level, they understand his character. For God opposes the proud. That term opposes means hostile takes a stance of hostility. He opposes the proud. It's in our God's nature that if the person comes to church because they want their name elevated above Jesus, our God takes offense to that. Offense. He opposes the proud. But the person who says, you go first, that's the one he gives grace to. He understands our God. Look at verse 6. Also, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Here's the fourth one. A mature Christian does not seek power, but waits for God to open doors. The mature Christian understands that if I am humble and I live in, in a humble relationship with my God in due time, in his time, 
I'll be exalted. And God knows exactly which office to put me in, where, 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 where exactly I need to go so that I can do the, be the most efficient for his kingdom. For his kingdom. Keep my head down. Love others. Be humble. And the way it's designed is, if a person, the way it's designed, Peter's saying, if a person has a problem always criticizing leadership, if a person always has a problem trying to be first, then that person, by definition, is not humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God. One sort of defines the other. How do you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God? Submit to the elders. Be humble towards others. And we know that's not always easy. But a maturing Christian, he or she doesn't scheme to get what he or she wants. The mature Christian is not upset when they're not acknowledged for the hard work that they do. When so-and-so got the credit, but you know, I put just as much work in as so-and-so. My name wasn't said. The mature Christian says, good, I'm glad they got credit. Mature Christian does not seek power or acknowledgement, but they wait for God. Verse 7, by doing that, they are able to cast all their anxieties on him because they know that God cares. They're able to throw the negative emotions upon him because God cares. You will always struggle in this life as a Christian so long as you think God is some evil puppet master who doesn't see your your problems, that he doesn't care about your heartaches. He does care. He does. But he uses those things to better you. So when I do go through problems, heartaches, and I have anxieties, and I'm depressed. Turn to him. Put it on him. Ask the honest question, why am I feeling this way? Is it pride that you're trying to work on with me, Lord? My anxiety, is it that I don't trust you? He cares. Verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Here's the fifth one. A maturing Christian never forgets he is in a war. A maturing Christian never falls into the trap that God's, God's sole purpose in life is to make me fat and happy and to give me whatever I want. 
Don't ever fall into that trap. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Drop your guard. There is someone out there who's, who's given the title of devil. Lucifer. Beelzebub. Beelzebub. He's real. His demons and his minions are real. You may think you're alone and no one sees in your house. You're not alone. They're watching. They're real. And so when you, you get upset and you get frustrated, why are these things happening to me? The devil's real. He's real. Verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by all brethren throughout the world. Here's the sixth one. Maturing Christians understand that suffering is the process for all believers. You're not the only one. And God's not going to make an exception for you. Abram, leave your family, go into Canaan, where he he lied to two kings, fought wars, struggled, suffering, so that he would trust God. Samuel, anoint David. Good, go to the throne? No, run for your life in the wilderness for many, many years before you even ascend to the throne. We can go on and on and on. That's the process. We all go through. But our God is meticulous and he's personal and he specially designs those who are walking in him, specially designs your circumstances to bring about the best for you. Things don't happen randomly. That's a lie. Get that out of your head. God's sovereign. And you're going through what you're going through if you are a believer and you love Christ because God in his sovereignty think it's best for you. Same kinds of sufferings. Experience about the, the brotherhood. Here's the last one. And I sort of said this throughout. Verse 10, and after you have suffered a little while, after you suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, one, restore, two, confirm, three, strengthen, and four, establish. Here's the last one. Maturing Christians trust that God is in control and all suffering will be used for his benefits. I've said that throughout, throughout, but here's the culmination of it all. Restore. Restore means to, to, to restore to former condition, to mend or repair. God's not going to let you break. He won't give you more than you can handle. If you trust him and you walk according to him, he won't let you drown. 
and, and I got to say this because I, it, it, it's just so profound to me. And I've said this before. One of my sons in a pool, jump, jump. No, I'm not jumping. The water's up to my waist and I got angry. As a father, I got angry. Little boy, you could drown even if you tried. Jump. I'm not going to let you drown. You better jump. And he jumped. He got over his fear and he swam for the rest of the day and he was never again afraid of water. But I saw from God's perspective the fear of jumping in water. What, what does that say about me? Who do you think I am? I'm so weak that I'll let you drown in water waist high. Well, you better jump. <laughs> and he jumped. Look at it from God's perspective. What are you so afraid of? You really think he'll let you break? No. He himself will restore you. He'll also confirm you to set something that is that it remains immovable, to fix firmly. He will not only restore, he will confirm you that through the suffering, the culmination of sufferings is to make you stronger. To strengthen, to make strong or to cause to be more able. Once you go through suffering with God, your powers grow. As you trust him, you'll be able to do more things. Powerful, powerful is the man or the woman who fear does not control. Powerful. And establish you. Establish means to lay a foundation to cause to be firm or unwavering. We see that in Paul. I'm about to die. If you kill me, better for me. But if I stay, it's better for you. I have my choice. I hope they cut my head off. Because I want to leave. But it's better for you, so I guess God is going to make me stay. I have my choice. I leave. Man didn't fear death. He didn't fear it. Paul said, bring it. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. If we learn to suffer the correct way, if we learn to suffer the godly correct way as a church, the power. God took 12 men, turned the whole world upside down. We've got more than 12 in here. And I'll just be satisfied with Chicago. But it takes the right perspective on suffering. I've told some of you before, our goal as a leadership is to have bricks come through our window because we're so preaching the gospel without shame. I hope our attitude is that we welcome suffering. Because like the apostles, then we would be we would be joyful that we were considered worthy to suffer. I don't want to just skip this as I close. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. 11. By Silvanius, a, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Why does he have to say that? That this is the true grace. Because all other stuff you see on television, 
That's, that, that's a show. Those are clowns. God didn't come here so you could drive a nice car. People are going to hell. Sin is real. The lake of fire, that's not fantasy. This is the true grace. The gospel. And we should be willing to suffer for it. Don't fall for the cheap imitation. Again, mature Christian respects the leader, leaders of the church. Mature Christians show difference to others. Mature Christian does not seek power but waits for God to exalt them. Mature Christians, we cannot ever, ever forget this is a war. Eternity, it's at stake. Mature Christians understand that suffering is the process for all believers. Stop running from it. Allow God to take you through it. And those in Christ who are maturing, they trust that God is in control and that any amount of suffering that he allows me to go through is for my benefit. For that is the true grace of God. Let us pray.